Welcome to Newer Church with Corey Turner. We pray you encounter God and become more like Jesus through this message. To find out more, visit us at numa.church. I want to invite you to go with me to Hebrews 10. Hebrews 10, we're going to go verses 19 to 22. And uh, just this week, um, God's been speaking to me out of this passage. He's calling us uh, closer to Him. And uh, I just want to acknowledge um, uh, some of you wouldn't know, many of you would know, Pastor Raph and Amin Solomon and Nat, who works in our apostolic pillar, they've been serving as interim location pastors at our Melbourne East location for the last nine months. And we've recently appointed new location pastors there. And uh, Raph and Amin are on our global team. And uh, they're back home today at our city location. So can we just put our hands together and just honour Pastor Raph, Pastor Amin. I know many of you wouldn't know them. Would you guys just stand up? Can we please honour Pastor Raph, Pastor Amin? Thank you so much, guys, for all that you've done. It's awesome to see what God's doing at our East location. Hebrews 10, 19 to 22. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, that is, through His flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. I want to speak to you today on the subject, don't sew the veil back up. Don't sew the curtain back up. Um, I, in my adolescent years, um, really struggled with the question, what is my life's purpose? And that is not an uncommon struggle. All of us at some point will wrestle and struggle with the meaning of life, the purpose of life, And many of us interpret that through the lens of vocation, career, what it is that we are to do. And that's a very sort of common response. And yet your life purpose has less to do with your doing and more to do with your being. Who you are versus what you do and the posture and and focus of your life. And so for me, I tried to, even though I love the Lord, was in relationship with the Lord in church and pastor's kid, grown up in the house of God. I tried to fill that question and that void by, you know, success in sports and athletics and, and, and doing things. The, the um, newspaper in America, USA Today, took a poll and asked a simple question. If you could ask God one question, what would it be? And the number one question that came back is what on earth am I here for? This has become known as the universal question. It's the question that beats in the heart of every single person. It is not a new question. If you've ever wrestled wrestled and struggled with purpose or with the sense of meaning or direction, uh, welcome to the family. We, We all wrestle with this to a point. There is a reason why, and I'll talk about that in a moment, And so we need to understand that this is an age-old wrestle. Ever since the fall, it's been a wrestle. In fact, in 1647, the Shorter Catechism of Westminster, a group of 
godly men gathered together and asked the question, what is the chief end of man? And the answer came back to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. In other words, God has formed us for Himself. He's formed us to love Him. He's formed us to live in His presence. It's in Acts 17, 28, I think it is, it says that in Him we live and move and have our very being. God is to be our all-consuming passion, our all-consuming pursuit. And when we make life about something other than this purpose of glorifying God and enjoying Him forever, this is when a whole lot of dysfunction and troubles begin in our lives. What, what is the inherent and root cause of our wrestle and of our struggle? It really comes back to sin that, and our fallenness that has separated us from our relationship with God and separated us from His presence. We need to understand that after Adam and Eve rebelled in Genesis 3, thought they knew better than God, bought into the lie of deception. Deception is a little bit of truth mixed with a little bit of error. And you can be attending a church and lift your hands and yet be living under the, the uh, disguise or the weight or the lens of deception. And, and so here is Adam and Eve. They've bought into the lie of the enemy. They've rebelled against God. They thought they knew better. And when the effects of their sin and the effects of their rebellion against God became known. This knowledge of good and evil, this consciousness and awareness of sin, they realised they were naked and they were ashamed. And the Bible says that they hid from the presence of God. They ran from the presence of God. We know that they enjoyed fellowship with God in visible form, in the cool of the day. So it tells me they must have had some amazing relational encounters with God in order to think that they could run away and hide from the presence of God. They had limited understanding of who God was, who God is, and so they ran away. And ever since the fall of the human soul, we have been running away ever since. And we've been running two things and two others and two careers and two status and two money and two the things of this world, the enticements and desires of our flesh and our own hearts to try and satisfy the cry, the void, the wrestle that is in our own lives. And have you discovered that nothing that this world can offer you, as wonderful as it is, even the good things that God has created for us to enjoy, nothing will satisfy the wrestle the void that's in our hearts, except coming into an encounter with God. And so ever since the fall, there has been this awareness, this acknowledgement of our sinfulness that has caused us to wanna hide from the presence. It's one of the reasons why people don't always respond to older calls or they don't wanna necessarily attend church because they're conscious of their sinfulness. They're conscious and aware. My own grandfather resisted coming down with me to an altar call many years ago. My parents were hosting the evangelistic ministry, an event of um, uh, Heaven's Gates, Hell's Flames. Does anyone ever remember attending Heaven's Gates, Hell's Flames? And back in the day, it was this big evangelistic outreach. And in fact, thousands of people got saved, powerful. And so my grandmother went straight to the front, gave her heart to the Lord. But my grandfather said, oh, if I go down the front, uh, the roof is gonna cave in. And I thought he was joking, but he was genuinely serious. It's amazing that we'll even believe superstitious stuff 
when we're deceived by our own brokenness. Didn't have a revelation of grace, didn't have a revelation of the gospel, the goodness of God, even though he heard it. And so because of his sinfulness, he resisted and almost ran away from the very thing, very, very solution to the, the, the wrestle in his own soul. Let me tell you, if you're sick in your body, don't run away from the presence of God, run to the presence of God. If you are needing help in a time of need, don't run away from the church, run to the church. It amazes me that people, they, when they, you know, they'll come back after many weeks or months and say, oh, I've been going through a difficult season. And I'm like, well, why weren't you here every week? And actually getting prayer and receiving like some encouragement from your brothers and sisters in Christ. Church is not just about presenting well when everything's going well and we're all good. Either we're a covenant family or we're not. Either church works or it doesn't. And because it works and it's God's idea, don't run away from the solution, run to the solution. <laughs> the solution to the wrestle of our souls and our hearts isn't running away, it's running to the presence of God. And this is why Jesus came to redeem us. He didn't just come to buy us back, redeem us from our sin and make sure that we have a free ticket to heaven. He came to restore us, reconcile us back to the presence of God. And so it's one of the great privileges of life is to be aware and to acknowledge that there is a desire, a yearning inside of us for the presence of God. If there is a desire and a yearning for the presence of God inside of you, things are heading in the right direction. It's when someone is rejecting hard, don't want anything to do with it, that we really need to pray that that heart of stone becomes a heart of flesh. Why? Because the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. It's, it's, It's very good when our hearts become more tender. It's an important thing. We become more like Jesus when our hearts are soft and when our hearts are tender. And so the, the, the redemption work of the cross is not just about saving us from something, it's saving us to someone. Many of us only think of salvation or the work of redemption as saving us from something. Hell, sin, darkness, that's true, but it's saving us to God. A heavenly Father, being reconciled back. And so our journey back to God's presence is likened to the Old Testament tabernacle. And often what we see as principle in the New Testament is best illustrated in Old Testament encounters, Old Testament examples. And so we see in the Old Testament tabernacle, the place of central worship in Israel. We see that there was an outer court. The temple in Jerusalem, there was an outer court. So when we use that word tabernacle, we're speaking of temple, a house of worship, okay? And so there was an outer court, and in the outer court, Jews, uh, the Hebrews would come, offer up sacrifices, and uh, they would wash themselves in the laver, in the wash basin, and, and that was part of the cleansing, sanctifying work to go through the first veil into the inner court. In the inner court was a place where there was a candlestick that spoke of the coming of the Messiah being the light of the world. 
And so as a candle would burn, so too Jesus would come as the Son of God and as Messiah to be the light of the world. He said, I am the light of the world. And then in the inner court, there would be the showbread, which speaks of the bread of life. And so Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Man shall not live by bread alone in the natural, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so His Word is bread to our spirits. It's life to our hearts and to our bodies. So in the inner court, there's the candlestick. There is the showbread, but there is also the altar of incense. The altar of incense that burned 24-7 was to speak of unceasing prayer and worship. Can you imagine with me in the coming years when we build a prayer chapel on the roof of this facility and and we have 24-7 unceasing worship and prayer. And we have 24-7 prayer rosters and we do it in all different parts of the city. But I'm believing that whilst it's all in different parts of the city, there's also a, a prayer chapel on the top of this building that looks over the city, eight, 10 stories up, that looks over the city. And 24-7, we have men and women of God coming and seeking God and worshiping and praying <clears throat> over the city. What a blessing to a city. <clears throat> and so we see in the inner court, there was another veil. There was a second veil. And this second veil, <clears throat> actually no one was allowed to enter through that veil except the high priest once a year to offer up sacrifices. And in the, in the second veil, through the second veil was the holy of holies. <clears throat> I'm just wondering, don't normally do this. Can I just get a, a drink of water? A holy of holies. And in the Holy of Holies, we see that there was the Ark of the Covenant. Now, how many of us know the Ark of the Covenant is the presence of God? And so, thank you. In the Ark of the Covenant, you see <clears throat> that above the mercy seat, literally the presence of God dwelled. And so the high priest could only enter once a year to offer sacrifices and the high priests had to have blood splattered on them. <clears throat> and if they weren't clean or if they weren't consecrated to sufficient expectations from the law, uh, they could die in the Holy of Holies. It's a pretty full on thing to be a high priest. <clears throat> no one's volunteering for that job. <clears throat> and so they would attach a bell and a rope to the ankle of the high priest. And as long as that bell was jingling and ringling, uh, they would know that, um, I don't know if that's such a word, but I made it up, um, that they would know, hey, it's all good. It's all kosher. Uh, the high priest is still alive. Thank you, Jesus. I bet if you were the wife of the high priest, you'd be a little bit worried back in those days. And, uh, but if there was silence and it all stopped, oh dear, <coughs> the high priest is being smitten by God. All right. It's a full on thing. The greatest fact of the Holy of Holies was the literal abiding presence of God. And so you fast forward to Jesus on the cross and after Jesus declares it is finished, the Bible tells us that the curtain, the veil that separated people in the outer courts and the inner courts from the Holy of Holies, the curtain, which was nine centimetres thick, woven of blue, crimson and white threads, nine centimetres thick, fairly thick. That curtain was torn into supernaturally from top to bottom when Jesus declared it is finished and he breathed his last breath. 
In other words, God was saying no longer would there be a separation, no longer would there be a curtain, no longer would there be a veil between anybody and the presence of God. And now, verse 19, we can understand it because we have now confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that Jesus, through His flesh, has opened for us. So the curtain, the veil was a picture of Jesus' flesh that had been torn asunder and now we have access into the holy places with God because of Jesus' finished work on the cross. So that means that if you're a child of God, you can confidently enter into God's presence. You have access. You don't need to go and, and, and you know, be a pastor and, and that's an honour and a privilege to be called into that. But God does not just say only you are allowed into my presence and not you. No, every believer, every child of God, if you're a child of God, you have access. You can enter into God's presence and God's presence enter into you. You can dwell with Him. You can live with Him. This is the beating heart of Christianity, yeah. is that you and I are not only forgiven of sin, but we're restored back to the presence yeah. of the Holy Spirit. God is waiting for us today on the other side of the veil. He wants intimacy. He wants relationship with us. And we need to understand the difference between the omnipresence of God and the manifest presence of God. We can acknowledge theologically that, that God is everywhere present. That's what omnipresence means, everywhere present. We know God's all-encompassing, all-empowering. He's everywhere present, but how many of us know it's a different thing to actually experience the tangible manifest presence of God in our lives? God doesn't want you to acknowledge His omnipresence theoretically. He wants us to live in His manifest presence tangibly, actually. It is not enough simply to have a theory of God. We are to have a practice of His presence in our daily life. We must move into conscious awareness. I think our everyday experience would change if we cultivate a conscious awareness of the presence of God at work in our lives. This is why I love the writings of Brother Lawrence, the 17th century French monk, a lay brother whose essential role in the monastery was to be a chef, to be a cook, and, and his writings practicing the presence of God have become legendary and worldwide over the centuries for someone who was so intentional and conscious of the presence of God as he would wash dishes and cook food and whatever he was doing, he was constantly connected and conscious. I wanna say to you, God does not just want you to experience his manifest presence at 11.30 service on a Sunday. He wants you to experience his presence on a Monday morning when you're a bit tired, you gotta go to work and when you're at the work cubicle or in the mechanic shop or when you're in, in the supermarket and getting groceries for the family or whether you're in the cafe or at your kid's sporting event or wherever you are dropping kids off at school. How many of us know we definitely need the manifest presence of God in peak hour traffic in the city of Melbourne? We need to be aware and conscious. God doesn't just vacate the premises of your heart. 
just because you don't feel like it today. And, and, and so often we're led by our feelings. And, and so if we don't feel His presence, we don't have any expectation. If we don't feel faith for, to, to pray for someone for the sick, we, we sort of just rule ourselves out and disqualify ourselves out. Know the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. Wherever you go, you have access. You can enter in. You can practice His presence. You can acknowledge the Lord God lives inside of me. And wherever I am, He is. Wherever I go, whatever I do, I can live aware, conscious, practicing the presence of God. Or may we be a people that don't just experience who God is in this space together, but may we be a people that wherever we go, we scatter together. It's not just in the gathering, it's in the scattering of our everyday lives. And I wanna tell every person in this room, every single one of you, because the, the, the presence of the Holy Spirit lives inside of you, if you're a follower of Christ, there, and if you're not, you're about to be in Jesus' name. You're welcome to the family, right? You're not here by accident today. You're here by intention. God wants you to hear this because He wants a relationship with you. And I declare faith is springing up in your heart right now because faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. And so you don't just have access to the presence, but you have a ministry. You're called, you're gifted, you're anointed. And the Lord has placed all sorts of manner of graces and giftings in you, not for you to admire, in the metaphorical spiritual mirror and say, oh, don't you look good today? No, for you to actually engage, use the gifts that God has given to you to move in the power of God. I didn't get born out of the womb prophesying, getting words of knowledge and moving in healing for the sick. I had to grow. I had to cultivate the intention and desire of God in my life. There was there was grace given to me, but the Bible says each one of us has received a measure of grace. What are you doing with the measure of grace God has given to you? You've been given a measure of faith. Don't compare your faith to my faith. Grow your measure. Whatever grace you've received, you can grow it. You can increase it. You can access it. Why? When you come into agreement with it. When you come into alignment with it. Why? Because the Holy Spirit not only has given you access through Jesus to Himself, but He's given you power for you to use the gifts and anointing that you have on your life to make a difference in our generation. Creation itself is longing for the sons of God to come into their fullness of identity, to come into the fullness of the revelation of who they are. And the enemy's been coming to some of you and you've been disqualifying yourself because you say, I don't have this and I don't have that. I rebuke that spirit of self-pity that needs to get off of you and you need to make a decision not to join the rest of the mass of our society that lives with a victim posture that says, oh, everything bad that happened to me must come from God or somewhere else. You're gonna make a decision and say, I'm called, I'm anointed, I'm gifted, I'm empowered. And it's not because of me, it's because of the Spirit of God that lives inside of me. You gotta preach to yourself. Harris, no, you just feel like you're about to splatter in a moment. I certainly am. You gotta learn to preach to yourself. Don't just wait till Pastor Corey preaches to you. You're gonna wake up every day and speak to that bung knee and say, you will be healed in Jesus' name. 
I injured my calf this week exercising for the hundredth time. It's like age is starting to catch up. And it's like, I, I tried to do the things I did when I was an 18 year old athlete and the body, and I said, no, I refuse to accept this. I know I'm getting older, we're all getting older, but in Jesus name, you will come good. I just injured it more. You will come good. You've got to preach to yourself. We've got to be like David that learned to encourage ourselves in the Lord. Why? This can happen when you realise God's waiting for you on the other side of the veil. And He lives inside of you, but He wants intimacy with you. You see, God was revealed to us in creation. He would walk with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day and have fellowship. He was revealed through the person of Jesus at the incarnation. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. God loved us so much. He didn't leave us to our own sin and our devices and our strategies. Have you discovered the world does not have strategies for the problems that we are facing? Talk to a guy who has a friend that's in the senior leadership team of the United Nations in Geneva. Geneva, United Nations, is where they create the policies and discuss all of the issues of the world and they discuss the solutions and the policies that the United Nations in New York uh, puts into effect and practice. And so he is in the key policy forming group for all of the world's issues, sixth from the top seat. And he said to my Friend, he said, there is great fear in the United Nations because we simply don't have answers for what the world is facing currently. Wow. Well, someone does, his name is Jesus. Someone does, it's called the Holy Spirit. He's the helper, he's the counsellor. Someone just plug back into the generator of the Spirit. Get a heavenly download for the issues and challenges that we are facing in the world. God, God came to Daniel and Daniel would have strategies for Babylon. God would come to Joseph in the middle of a famine and would give Joseph strategies for Egypt. If God can do it for Daniel and Joseph, let me tell you, He can do it for you in your workplace. He can do it for you and your boss. He can do it for you and your finances. Yep, we know the economy is just gone to trash. We know that. But let me tell you something. God has answers. There's something called a kingdom economy. And you're gonna plug into the generator of the kingdom economy of God and begin to watch the solutions of the Holy Spirit begin to be awakened and quickened to you. I declare that this church is coming into the fullness of the kingdom economy of heaven over our lives, our families, our businesses, and this church. We are in meetings right now talking about the future of what God is doing. And let me tell you, God has solutions. God has strategies. But it doesn't come if we assume a victim posture and just wait for God to rescue us. You've got to come into the fullness of who God is in you. That comes by revelation. That's why we need to pray daily, Lord, fill me with the spirit of wisdom and revelation. Enlighten the eyes of my heart to know the hope, not just acknowledge the hope, to know the hope to which I'm called. So God was revealed in creation. God was revealed through the incarnation and God is revealed through the manifestation of the Holy Spirit. 
When the Holy Spirit was given, imparted, the transference from heaven and the work of the Spirit of God, the person of the Spirit of God in the earth, God was revealing Himself. There's some things you and I need to know about God. God is eternal. He's independent of time. He never confronts or bumps into a problem in your life, scratches his head and go, I've never seen this one before. Have you discovered we tend to act like God's never come this way before? And we're like, oh God, I know you've seen some doozies, but you haven't seen this one. It's not like God's like, I don't know what we're gonna do. Get the angel with the mangy wing and just bring him in and let's, you know, he's been around a little while and never. I love the angel with the mangy wing. Never, God's not at a loss. It's not like when the diagnosis comes and it's like, surprise to you, God's not like, oh no, what are we gonna do? No, there's already a covenant of healing. There's already provision in His Word. There's already everything that you need, Peter says, that pertains to life and godliness has been given to you and I. So God is eternal before you and I were, He was. After we're gone, He still will be. But He's also immutable, which means He doesn't change. He doesn't need to change because He is perfect. He is perfection personified. Talking about His character, His nature. Aren't you glad Jesus is the same yesterday, today and forever? That's speaking about His character, His love, His orientation towards you and I as created beings made in His image. But how many know the ways He works in our lives is dynamic. He doesn't want you to rely on a formula. He wants you to live by faith. He wants you to understand that you're in relationship with a person. God is not a concept. He's not a philosophy. He's not an idea. This is why it always cracks me up when people in universities and and on debates on TV talk about God as if it's a philosophy, as if it's an idea that we can contain and control. And this is why we need to be people that not only know the Word, but we also know how to move in the power of the Holy Spirit, because someone can argue an idea, but they can't argue an encounter with the power of the Holy Spirit. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, Paul said, for it is the power of God unto salvation. And one of the reasons why the Western church has been weak and powerless is because we've tried to debate and argue ideas rather than demonstrating the Spirit in power. We need to know the truth, of course. For a lack of knowledge, my people suffer. It's only as you know the truth, the truth shall set you free. But truth is power and truth has an application. And so this relationship with God that we have must not be an idea. You're not in relationship with an idea, a philosophy, a way of life. This isn't just another self-help route to your success. We're talking about the creator of heavens and the earth. We're talking about the storm chaser. We're talking about the ocean parter. We're talking about the dead raiser. We're talking about the healer, the deliverer, the empowerer. I'm telling you, the Spirit of God is knocking on your door today and He's saying it's time to wake up into the fullness of what I've called you to. He's eternal. He's immutable. He is pure perfection. He's omnipotent. What does that mean? It means He's all powerful. Nothing is too hard for Him. Everyone could be against you, but if the Lord is for you, who dare be against you? 
He's omnipresent, everywhere present. He is omniscient. He's all-knowing. So that means if you don't know something, yeah, there's a place for diligent study. There's a place to actually research and look up and learn and grow and renew our minds. But there's also this incredible person called the Holy Spirit who lives inside of you. I don't know what to do. Holy Spirit, guide me, lead me. And Isaiah prophesied and promised, you shall hear a voice behind you saying, this is the way, walk ye in it. Many times I am not that clever, but one thing I am is dependent. I'm dependent. I throw myself at Him every day and I say, God, here's a new day. I'm probably gonna mess this up today, but I'd really appreciate your help. I need you, I love you. And I don't need you because I want an answer for this issue and that issue. I need you and want you for you. But out of the overflow of love relationship in the fullness of who God is, oh, He's a giver of every good gift. Every good and perfect gift comes down from above, from Father of lights, of whom there is no shadow or variation due to change. It's amazing what God will do for the one who loves Him above everything else. In fact, this is what marked all of the heroes of the faith. Whether you went through Enoch, the Bible says Enoch walked with God and he was not, for he, uh, God took him. In other words, God delighted in Enoch's love for him so much that God said, I wanna bring you home now. You don't have to see out your life, I'm taking you now. Oh Lord, beam me up, Scotty. That'd be awesome, wouldn't it? Beam me up, Enoch. Let's go. Paul said to be in the body is good for you, to be be in heaven's better for me. Sometimes we need to be in the body on earth to serve. Other times, Lord, beam me up now, let's go. You're gonna spend eternity there, you may as well get used to the idea. And this is what I say to Christians, better resolve your conflicts with your brothers and sisters in Christ here, you're gonna spend all eternity with them in heaven. Someone liked it. I love it. Moses, God came to Aaron and Miriam when they thought, how come God only uses him? He can use us too, speak to us, old covenant. And God comes to them and says, hey, when I speak to prophets, I speak in visions, dreams and and all manner of words. But when I speak to my servant, my son, Moses, I speak to him face to face. The company of burning hearts, whether it's Enoch, Moses, Mary Magdalene, Mary of Bethany, Paul, David, the company of burning hearts were all marked by one common denominator. They loved God more than they loved their lives. They're more in love with God than they were things. We talked about that last Sunday night. If you haven't seen that, get on YouTube, watch it. Why? Because there are a number of messages coming down the barrel of the cannon over these months that you and I need to wrap our heads around. Why? Because God, if we think we've seen stuff, let me tell you, we have not seen anything yet. There is another wave. There is another overflow. There's another move of the Spirit. There is another thing that God is going to do and He is preparing us and He is wanting us to be closer to Him, to look more like Him than ever before. And as we live out of the overflow of our love relationship with God because of a revelation of who He is, it is amazing what God will do. He will not withhold. He's looking for people to trust. He's not looking for moral perfection. He's looking for a heart orientation. 
that says, God, I'm going to lay hold of you. I don't get it right. I mess up, but I'm going to lay hold of you. So if all of this is such good news, why do we still wait in the outer courts? Why are some believers stuck their whole lives in the outer courts? I'll tell you why. It's because the veil of the self-life still remains over their heart. And this is what the Hebrew writer comes and says in verse 22. He says, you know what? Since we've got a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts. That's the second time he mentions the word heart. Here's a little help to interpret the Bible. Whenever there is a word, an idea, an argument or a concept that is repeated multiple times, God's saying, listen up, I'm trying to get a message through to you. So the drawing near to God is through our hearts. And as long as there is a veil of the self-life over our hearts, we're not gonna be able to access the fullness of who God is at work in our lives. So he says, let us draw near with a true heart, full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies, not talking about having a shower, our bodies washed with pure water, speaking about the sanctification of our flesh. The sins of the self-life isn't something we do, It's something we are. And therein lies its subtlety because lurking beneath the facade of our everyday, our worship, our comings, our goings, our work, our family, our money, our shopping, our life, there often for decades, maybe for many people's entire lives, the sins of the self-life never get dealt with, they never get rebuked. The sword of truth tries to touch it, the conviction of the Spirit tries to come against it. But if we don't recognise and become aware of these self-life sins, then we will constantly hit a lid in our relationship with God where we get so far, but the self-life rises and we pull back. Have you ever felt drawn into the presence of God? I know I have, and getting closer and closer, but then that the self-life rears its head in, 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 in maybe an argument or a conversation or something happens and it's like the sword of the spirit, the sword of truth touches on that living spiritual tissue of the self-life and it hurts and stings a bit. Maybe you get offended at what someone did or someone said and you rise up and you go, you know, oh no, that's too much. Have you ever, something's come out of you and you're like, where did that come from? Like every spouse in this room knows what I'm talking about. Every parent with a child knows what I'm talking about. And even if you're not married and don't have kids, you know what I'm talking about. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) I love it. So we need to understand what are some of the sins of the self-life? Because many of us would not know what they are unless they're spoken out. Here's one of the sins of the self-life, self-sufficiency. Self-sufficiency says, I may acknowledge God with my lips, but when it comes down to it, my heart is totally dependent on me. I am the answer. If it's gonna be, it's up to me. You can attend church your whole life. You can even go to heaven, but your whole life, 
totally the self-life of self-sufficiency will always restrict how much of the fullness of God's presence you can actually engage with and interact. Self-sufficiency says, I am the answer. Another sin of the self-life is self-admiration. It's a little bit more subtle than pride. Everybody in the room knows that pride is ugly and ego is ugly. But self-admiration lurks a little bit sort of beneath the shadows. Had a mentor say to me once, you know, you don't wear pride on your sleeve. This is 25 years ago. You don't wear pride on your sleeve, Corey. You wear it under your armpit so nobody can see it, but it still stinks. How many know that hurt a little bit? It's very hurtful. But it was true. And, and we live in a culture of tall poppy syndrome, which actually is more about self than about anything else too, because we don't want others to show us up. So we pull you down. And so we live in a culture where we've turned tall poppy syndrome, pulling people down because of insecurity into a national sport, right? But I tell you, one of the sins of the self-life that we as in our culture need to have teared out of us is self-admiration. It's connected to self-confidence. I'm not saying you can't obviously have a healthy love for yourself because Jesus affirmed the greatest commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength and mind. Love your neighbour as you love yourself. There is a healthy self-love, but there is an unhealthy self-admiration where we, we may not say it, but we assume a posture of superiority over others. It's closely linked to self-righteousness where we think if we do this and do this and do this, we are morally superior to other people. And Isaiah 64, 6 says that our self-righteousness is as filthy rags. The only righteousness that you and I have is a righteousness imputed to us through Jesus on the cross. We have no righteousness. In fact, the psalmist said, none is righteous, no, not one. No one except him. That's why you can't earn this. That's why self-confidence is an illusion. I grew up in the world of athletics and sport where they're like, believe in yourself. If you just believe in yourself, everyone's trying to, what does that even mean? Just believe. Everyone's tense, I believe. You still lose, but I believe. What does that mean? But the text says in verse 19 that the only confidence we have to enter His presence is through the blood of Jesus. I didn't shed any blood. You didn't. He did. You're my confidence. Because I know even on my best day, it doesn't come close to, to, to your worst day. On the cross, there's, there's self-admiration, there's self-righteousness, there's self-pity. Self-pity is married to a victim posture, victim mentality. Victims in a victim mindset inherently believe that they are the hero of their own narrative and everything that happens to them is not their responsibility. Everyone else is to blame. And it is one of the most reprehensible sins because 
it actually never takes responsibility for anything in our own lives. It just plays the blame game. Henry Snow, we cannot grow if we don't take personal responsibility for some of our behaviours. And we say, one of some of those powerful words you can say to someone is, I'm sorry, I did that and it was wrong. I'm believing today out of this message, people are gonna go back to work colleagues, bosses, family members and say, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have said that about you. What does Isaiah 58 say? God does not always acknowledge the things that we call fasting. Oh, I fasted, I humbled myself. Why didn't you respond to me? And you read Isaiah 58. He says, when you stop pointing the finger at others, then your healing shall spring up speedily. Then the glory of God will break out. Sometimes the fast that you need to choose is not another three-day fast, literally. Some of you need to fast like that. But others, it's not that. Some of you need to fast from gossiping. Some of you need to actually stop and say, I'm sorry I was wrong. Do you know right there, when you say, sorry, I was wrong, you're repenting? That's repentance. Repentance isn't just coming to the altar, feeling remorseful and weeping and gnashing of teeth and throwing yourself at the altar. Oh, I repent. Repenting is going to your loved one, a work colleague or someone and saying, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have done that. Is this helping anyone today? Because this is what, and, and if you're a leader of a life group or you're in ministry, the invitation from heaven to be in ministry is to actually learn to get out of your own way and live your life on display, warts and all. And what it does, it gives people permission to go on their own transformation journey. The closer you get to Jesus, the more tender your heart becomes. And the more that there is this acknowledgement, God, I need you. And so, bringing this to a probable conclusion. How many of us know the self-life, the veil of the self-life will not be torn by you white knuckling it and wishing it to go away who's ever tried to wish to be leaner and healthier and then eaten something you shouldn't have eaten and you're like oh done it again you can't white knuckle righteousness you can't white knuckle the self-life this is what you got to do you got to crawl up onto the altar lay yourself down and say god i present my body as a living sacrifice The only way to deal with the self-life is crucify it. Galatians 5.24, I have crucified the flesh along with its passions. Why? Because it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. I wanna ask us to stand together and, and I'm gonna ask you to actually posture your heart towards the Lord by saying, God, Would you uproot and tear out the self-life inside of me? Would you uproot and tear out the hidden sins lurking beneath the facade of my walk with you? 
God is waiting for us on the other side of the veil. There's a deeper, more intimate relationship that He wants with you and I. So I invite you, if you want to come in low, climb up onto that altar, and why don't you just lift your hands right now all across this room. Father, we come to you. We're asking you, Lord, to forgive us. To tear out of us and root out of their heart system. Everything, oh God, that would get in the way and block a deeper relationship, intimacy, encounter with you. God, we thank you for the privilege of walking with you and journeying with you and you highlighting and pointing out things, not to punish us, but to actually make us more like Jesus. And so Lord, today, would you come and cleanse our hearts? Would you come and reveal to us in a gentle way, Lord, the things of the self-life that are blocking the way from greater glory and a greater and more intimate relationship with You. God, we come in low. We come in like little child. We don't come assuming a posture of superiority and self-righteousness. We come in low and we say, God, oh, we need You. Apart from You, we can do nothing. And I'm praying today, oh God, that both individually and corporately, we as a church, as we draw near to You, oh God, Lord, we would become more like You. And God, we would see the fruit of this partnership, the fruit of this work in our lives. We would see lives changed. Lord, lives transformed for Your glory and honour. Lord, we would do things not out of a self-motivation, but out of a God desire. And Lord, that we would see more and more of this world look more and more like the kingdoms of our God. Lord, this is our desire to honour You, to live for You, to worship You, to be more like You. So God, today, would You do that? Go deep in our hearts today. Come on, let's just worship for a moment. Just open up your heart to the Lord. Pour out your affection. Thank you for listening to Numa Church with Corey Turner. We pray that you have been blessed by today's message. Please follow us on our social media platforms and visit our website, numa.church. Thank you.